Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Is Rotten Tomatoes wrong about season eight of Game of Thrones? That's right, kids. It's our first TV episode. We want to welcome back the catch-up crew. Still workshopping that name, aka friends of the podcast. And we have a great show ahead of you guys today with another certified guest. I'm very much digging the certified guests. But first, Mark, my homo hetero life mate. I don't even know how you put it. Is it hetero life mate? Because then we would be married, right? It says in the run of show that uh, you're my bestie, yet you decided to pivot from that name. Yeah. And it may be a lack of commitment, some cold feet on your part. No, I think bestie does not really encompass our actual relationship because besties are interchangeable. I feel like you and I have a deeper connection. Uh, Platonic life partner is good as long as any other possible platonic or non-platonic life partners in your or my life are cool with it. I'm pretty sure mine are. I think mine are as well. (laughs) Both imaginary and non-existence. Hater's not going to come after you, I swear. But he might after he hears me talk about this episode, because I think he's friends (laughs) with the folks that are the reason why we're talking about this today. We are talking about the much talked about, slightly controversial, but jam-packed season eight of Game of Thrones because HBO is launching actually their Iron Anniversary this April to celebrate the show's premiere 10 years ago and to get fans excited for their next cash grab, The House of Dragons, Uh. slated to begin production (laughs) this year. Season eight of Game of Thrones is actually the only season of the show that is 54% on the tomato meter with a 30% rotten audience score. People didn't like it. Um, and <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and say they had reasons. Uh, we have a guest who, uh, I guess refers to himself as the Prince of Dorne on his IG. So <laughs> he's down. He might know more than we do. He might feel differently than the critics and the fans, but I think he has taste. So I think he's going to agree. But before we bring him in, <laughs> kidding, kidding. Uh, we want to give a shout out to a member of the Ketchup crew who actually gave us a suggestion, Georgia Hudson. She's from Australia, and so I don't know if that's supposed to sound differently, but I'm not going to be a problematic and try and do an Australian accent because I work for an Australian, and if I do it poorly, he might fire me. But this is what Georgia says <laughs> from Georgia. It would be very interesting to hear if any of you, or anyone for that matter, think that season eight gave the satisfying end we all deserve. For those that are or aren't, uh, 
if you can, Mark, try to break down for us, not a synopsis, let's say, because that's just not going to work and we don't have this much time. But let's go ahead and just break down what season eight was doing. If I'm just going to I'm going to try to run through each of these episodes as quickly as I can, because it is only six episodes, which doesn't sound like a lot. But for our synopses here on Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. It is possibly the greatest Herculean task ever undertaken by Jacqueline and myself giving a synopsis of this. So let me start you off with Winterfell. That's the first episode. And it happens to be 92 percent fresh on the tomato meter, the highest rated episode of this season. And that is where we get to Winterfell. John and Daenerys arrive there with some unsolid and Dothraki forces. The Northerners aren't really sure what to make of it, but we also have sort of a Stark family reunion. And then we move on to your next episode, A Night of the Seven Kingdoms, and that is where Jamie is trying to win over everyone at Winterfell. Why? For a number of reasons. He's a Lannister. They don't trust him because he's in cahoots with Cersei sometimes, and he pushed the kid out of the tower a long time ago. In episode three, this is the long night. This is the one that made everybody question, what is going on with my TV? Why is HBO messing with me? They did it with the end of The Sopranos, and now they're doing it again with Game of Thrones. I can't see much, but I think it's awesome. That is the big battle, and it's pretty sweet. And apparently took them 55 nights to shoot that thing. Episode four, we're past the halfway point, is the last of the Starks. That's where the survivors of that battle, they mourn everyone for a while. They have sort of a, um, <laughs> I guess you would call it a solemn celebration, kind of like where you're celebrating Christmas, but you really miss Tiny Tim. And so it's a, it's a mixed bag there. And then we realize that, hey, now we got to aim southbound and take care of this whole Cersei King's Landing situation. The Bells is your penultimate episode in Game of Thrones history. To this point, and that's where we get the battle for King's Landing because Daenerys goes crazy with a dragon and everything gets set on fire, much to the chagrin of even the people who were her allies up to that point, including Jon effing Snow. And then we all said goodbye with tears in our eyes, either because we were going to miss these characters or because we couldn't understand what the hell was happening in this season with episode six, The Iron Throne. It's Daenerys and the aftermath of King's Landing being pretty much no more and having to be rebuilt. And that's when we find out, spoiler alert, that Bran is going to assume the throne. And he's not going to have an heir, which is probably good news in Game of Thrones. And he also liberates the North to be their own kingdom. And guess who's ruling that one, Jacqueline? You're right. It is Sansa. Meanwhile, Arya Stark goes off to find herself somewhere else. That's the storyline that I was most interested in. But I digress. I just did a synopsis of Game of Thrones season eight, and I need a nap. Way more entertaining, I will say, than suffering through watching it. But that's my thoughts. I don't know. Producey Lucy, um, you're back with us today. Game of Thrones, were you, were you about it all seasons, all there? Yeah. Uh, I started it you late. You were about it. I started it late, uh, season eight. Uh, I was disappointed <laughs> by the end. But really quick. My favorite ep my favorite character in all of Game of Thrones is Daenerys Rucker. Mark, you called her oh. Daenerys. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. Let's let's keep I referring. Called her, I called her Darius. Daenerys. <laughs> Isn't that a name? No. Daenerys. Daenerys. No, it's Daenerys. <laughs> no. You're adding a little too many syllables. There's a little bit extra in there. And by I mean, the hey, way, look, as I'm someone... going to tell everyone right now, okay? We have an expert in Game of Thrones coming on. We have the Prince of Dorne, not not the one in the show, but our own Prince of Dorne. I am here representing the every person. I'm here that, <laughs> for the person that tunes Do in once not. a week, tweets Do about not. it. 
gets excited and then leaves. I didn't read the books, folks. Don't even, do not even pretend that you're gonna play this like I am a man of the people bullshit because you couldn't pronounce something. <laughs> that is not how it's gonna work. And I hope that our guest agrees with me on this. But let me go ahead and intro him. Of course, I'm talking about Andreas, no extra syllables, Cabrera. <laughs> Cabrera. Uh, Andreas is a writer and critic for Geeks of Color and the host of The Meaning of Podcasts. Andreas, do you agree with me that Mark is adding an extra syllable? It's Andres. It's Andres. Cabrera. Andres? Yes. <laughs> we're, we're tied. <laughs> it's a whole Game of Thrones uh, name that I got on my hands. Uh, wow. Yeah. Andres. Andres. Am I saying you're Andres? Yes. Okay. Uh, either one works, guys. I'm totally cool with it. Uh, yeah, I mean, to be fair, they did call Daenerys Danny pretty much the whole season. So I feel like you can get away with a Danny, Mark, if you want to, right? I've, I've met <laughs> Danny's. <did>. I've interacted <laughs> with Danny's. I, I know a Danny that currently is watching Molly while I do this episode. Look, I'll just start calling her Khaleesi again. Okay, I'll go back to season one and two if you want. You can. Oh, what was the other one? What did they also call her? The M word from when she freed them? Uh, Misa, is that it? Misa, yeah. Yeah, Misa. All right, we're not gonna use any of those nicknames. We're gonna go with Danny. Let's go ahead and figure it out. Is Rotten Tomatoes wrong? I think I've given my hints, but Andres, what do you think? Yeah, I, I really feel like I'm outnumbered here, guys, but I guess, the, I guess that's the point. Uh, yes, it is wrong about Game of Thrones season eight. I feel like a lot of people forgot about these great six episodes that were happening all together because of certain decisions that were being made in the final episode. But overall, I feel like the vast majority of what happened throughout the season was fresh. I can I can defend it too, um, along with Andres, just because I, again, as someone who is not too emotionally invested in Game of Thrones, make no mistake, I enjoyed it and I considered it appointment viewing on Sunday nights if I was at all able to get to a TV and there wasn't currently an NFL game on. I wanted to watch Game of Thrones and I got excited about it. Did I remember all the names or how to pronounce them? Not necessarily, but I cared about the people. I cared about the faces. I cared about the dragons. I cared about the towns, the landings, the fells all of it, and I didn't feel like this season was as good as previous seasons that I saw, but I still think Rotten Tomatoes is wrong that this season was just so unfairly maligned by critics, understandably so, because they had seven, six great seasons, seven really good seasons leading into this, but I still think that at the end of the day, it was pretty quality entertainment. Wow, no, it was horrible. Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> is right, but I will say this, it was horrible equally had some amazing moments. So I don't want to say this is like a situation where I think Rotten Tomatoes is wrong because it's too high. I think the score is absolutely correct with where it needs to be, about down the middle. It's it's sort of like, I think I said with The Last Jedi, it's like the home run derby. You're standing up there with a lot of courage and you're trying to connect. The Last Jedi feels like a home run derby situation where the majority of the things are hits and then there's just a bunch of ugly whiffs. Whereas, and I feel like Game of Thrones is the opposite. There are a few amazing hits like Arya killing the Night King and John riding uh, a dragon for the first time and the whole discovery of John's lineage. All of those things are like hit out of the park, amazing moments, but there's so many whiffs. And most of the whiffs are in character development and in plot and in just cohesive writing to where I have a hard time forgiving the rest. And I also think that 
in actuality, had this show not developed so much goodwill, we probably would have seen uh, season six, seven, and eight also be significantly lower than what they were. I think this this show had built up so much goodwill and had done things so well that we had seen the, I would say, glimpses of what was gonna maybe happen when these folks took it wrong uh, earlier seasons and they just didn't really go as wrong as they could have been later. But that's what I remember, but I don't need just me to decide that. We have our excellent review curation manager, Mr. Tim Ryan, to sort of break down with us uh, what critics were saying at the time. So let's go ahead and take it away with Two Minutes with Tim. Two Minutes with Tim. A TV show is like a relationship. You're in a friendship or a romantic relationship or something, and you want it to work out. So there are times where you might spot some faults or some flaws or something like that, but you're willing to overlook it because on the whole, you're in a relationship with something. So when a show goes bad or jumps the shark, as they say, it feels like almost like a betrayal to people. Like they take that stuff so seriously and personally in some cases. And I think that's one way of looking at the season eight of Game of Thrones, where people were so invested in Game of Thrones and so in love with the universe that it created that when it came time to wrap it up, people were really underwhelmed. And underwhelmed or even I've met rational people who were angry at the end of it. They kind of couldn't overlook those flaws. And so the whole thing, like a relationship gone bad or like a friendship gone bad, the whole thing is sort of irreparably tainted by the way it sort of ended. The last season of Game of Thrones got the worst reviews of any of the seasons of Game of Thrones, which was a critical darling forever in addition to being a popular favorite. On the season level, it's at 54% with 21 reviews, and it's got an audience score of 30%. What you can see as the episodes go along is this feeling of diminishing returns and a slow sort of realization that the eighth season is not up to the quality of the previous seven. So what did some of the critics have to say? In a rotten review, Graham Blunt Mandel of The Australian wrote, Game of Thrones finally finished, the last episode aptly titled The Long Night, and it was a terrible ending, disappointing for fans, causing a collective cringe around the globe. On the other hand, Carmen Paddock of The Skinny wrote, This concluding season may not live up to its promise, but it finds a sense of peace for its survivors. And for those of you who were disappointed by season eight of Game of Thrones, fear not, because there are potentially five more Game of Thrones spinoffs in the works. 12 minutes with Tim. <laughs> He's singing his own theme song now, ladies and gentlemen. Digging that. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. He's coming for your gig, Lucy. All right, so... I remember that. And I will say thank you, Tim, for that, because I do remember what he was saying about the betrayal aspect, because I remember people being not even so much like angry like they are like on the Internet where they're just like, ah, you know, like like railing against something. They just felt like this. Yeah, a betrayal like you, you just caught your boyfriend in bed with somebody else like all of this. And this is how you leave me. It was almost depressing. Um, I don't know, Mark. Do you recall that from that time? I sort of learned from the last Jedi release to call back your point earlier that I really tried to not get in the heads of, of fans and, and critics too much as to what they were expecting. But a lot of me reacting to the reactions of Game of Thrones season eight was based around there's so many people who love this so much that they actually read the books. And when I say read the books, 90 percent of them 
did the audiobook. They listened to it. They had it read to them. So you don't get a Mensa membership for that. But they cared about it. And then all of a sudden, HBO and the creators of the show sort of are going forward from the books because George R. R. Martin hadn't finished writing what he was going to do. And so I think that whereas they were approaching the prior seasons with some working knowledge of what was going to happen, even though those took some twists and turns that weren't in the books, they knew what to expect. And then they just became like the rest of us where it felt like it was just flying by the seat of our pants and making this up as we go along because nobody really knew how this was going to end. And so I think that left a sour taste in people's mouth. Just my two cents. What about you, Andreas? I mean, I'm sure you were watching it real time. Did you feel like left out with how angry people were? Did you feel like, hey, were you like trying to, you know, evangelicalize them that day and be like, no, look, this is what's good. Or were you kind of like, I get it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if we remember, the Game of Thrones was the biggest show when it was airing. It was everyone was watching it. Uh, I remember my roommate and I watching it. Uh, as season eight was airing and I would watch, I watched a long night with him episode three and I was just kind of like ripping out my hair uh, and being blown away by what I was seeing on screen. And after the episode, he was like, oh yeah, what was that? And I'm like, what was that? It was, it was a cinematic masterpiece on TV. Uh, and we just kind of forgot about it because we wanted more answers, I guess is the biggest thing that Game of Thrones fans wanted. Um, I also feel like it's a little bit, it's very complex because I really do feel like the way that Game of Thrones fandom just dissipated into nothingness is something that is just gonna be in the history books. I've never seen a fandom disappear to the point that Game of Thrones fandom has disappeared after season eight. Because if you wanna say Star Wars, for example, as far as fandom split on the sequels, there's still a lot of sequels fans. There's still a lot of Star Wars being made and there's still a lot of people who enjoy going back and rewatching those movies. I, I don't know any Game of Thrones, I don't know Game of Thrones Twitter, Game of Thrones TikTok, uh, the way that there is like other fandoms who have just come back strong. So there is no denying that the fans did feel some sort of betrayal. I just feel like there's one major decision that was made that kind of got people up in arms and they just kind of forgot about the other six hours of, of the season that actually was really well shot, directed, performed, done, acted. Uh, everything was just quality all the way. But the fact that my the decision I'm referring to is Bran being king, which is de definitely a WTF moment. Uh, everyone was like, Bran is king? Oh, season eight sucks. And I'm like, does it? I think that's, I think that's true with some people, yeah. but... I would also say that it does go deeper than that, okay. but we will get into the deeper portions when we sort of break this down. And actually, uh, let's go ahead and break it down in the TV talk section. Christian, give us the cue, please, sir. So, Andreas, I'll start with you. Um, what do you think is the best episode of season eight? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard not to bring up The Long Night episode three episode and how incredible that episode was in every aspect that was given to us when it comes to the direction and uh let me let, let me just address the elephant in the room why not but mark you brought it up the whole uh lighting aspect of this is always a conversation that i will love to get into with people i understand that most american audiences do not appreciate the aspect of natural lighting 
Um, but all that is very purposeful, Mark. It is very much supposed to be there to give you the feeling of ultimate darkness, which is what the White Walkers represented. And then all the light that slowly creeps into everything, whether it was given to us by the fire in the swords of the Dothraki or the fire in the trench or uh, the fire from the dragons or uh, the moonlight that was kind of shining through the trees during the scene with Bran and the Night King, all those little lighting aspects was done in a very purposeful way to kind of light the way for audiences to slowly reveal what was being seen and what was being done uh, to the soldiers that were being massacred by the whites. But the aspect of giving us this incredible setup and then in the second act, giving us this like small, intimate, tiny horror movie with Arya dodging whites left and right in his little zombie movie. And then by the very end, giving us the incredible wonder where Jon Snow is taking down a bunch of whites and then faces off against the dragon. Uh, and then finally concluding that with Arya killing the Night King and us as an audience being surprised by that, considering we all thought it would be Jon. All that is just to lead up to an incredible, all-time episode, in my opinion, considering what it gave us and what it delivered, but the anticipation of Dothraki's, uh, who are considered to be the most fierce warriors in all of Game of Thrones, just being wiped out in the span of five seconds after us getting hyped up uh, is incredible. And also, can I just bring up the dark humor aspect of this episode, too, and how the scene in the crypt uh, where the women and children are being kept I thought was very like evil deadish, very dark humorish, um, where the irony of like the Night King uh, coming up and raising people from the dead and they forgot that, oh, let's put the women and children in the crypt. And it turns out a bunch of zombies are gonna be risen up and they're gonna kill the women and children. It's very much like a dark humor moment, but it also adds to the aspect of like this completely ultimate destruction type of episode where everything seems lost. I, I just felt like, there's so many emotions, roller coaster of emotions that we're feeling throughout the episode as far as who's going to die, who's going to live. And I think a lot of people forgot about it because of the last episode. <laughs> I, I, I completely agree with you. I love this episode. Yeah. And so when I referenced that you couldn't see much during the battle, that's not necessarily my complaint. Someone can check my Twitter receipts. I don't think I was one of those people that was complaining about it. There was a lot. There was a lot. There was a lot. There was. And that's what obsessed me about that episode is that it, it was it was kind of mandated by the creators that hey we need to have this like pretty much pitch black except for the natural lighting or dragons breathing fire. I mean, there's a candle lit behind me. That's more lighting than you see in that scene. But I think it works because it it feels authentic. So I had absolutely no issue with it, and I also understood it from a television making perspective because it reminded me of the gigantic battle of Blackwater in season three, I want to say, where they changed it because in the books that was during the day and they changed it to night simply for special effects purposes because it's so much easier to pull off gigantic effects pieces at night to sort of mask that it's that it's CGI. And so some of that was by design. The only thing that I will say against that episode, because it features some of my favorite moments in not just this season, but in the entire show, is I felt so bad for the crew and the performers who had to do that for 55 nights in freezing cold conditions night after night shooting it only to finally have this thing hit the airwaves and then them checking their phones to see what the reaction of this incredible laborious effort they put in and people go oh, i can't see it i can't see it like you do know that there's settings on your tv you can jack up if you want to see more of it right like everybody knows 
We're not working with a fat back anymore where we got the bunny ears. We all have nice TVs. <laughs> we can tune them accordingly as long as you're not watching it on your on your phone. Okay. And for the young and for our Gen Z and youngers, a fat back was a very large television set before they were flat screen where it was basically as big as a table. I just want everyone to know that it was Mark was talking about. I'm not trying to, to age you, Mark, but I know for a fact hey. nobody under the age of 20 knew what you were talking Back about. Back in my day, <laughs> we had clashes of titans, and there was a mechanical ow, and we were thankful for it. I know. Well, also, though, okay, so that's the the best. Um, I'm guessing that there's still going to be a worse for you, Andres, even though you still think overall the season is fresh for reasons. <laughs> What's the worst episode? for the season eight for you? Um, it's tough because I feel like there is different episodes that I can name as far as decisions being made. But for the most part, I feel like most episodes gave us a satisfying conclusion, except for maybe, I really do feel like the scene in the final episode that kind of put the nail in the coffin for fans. And for even me, I, even I had to be like, all right, y'all, What's going on? <laughs> uh, was the uh, the Tyrion scene with the meeting with the lords, uh, where they decided that Bran should be king because Tyrion thought it was a cool idea. Um, after everything we went through, it did feel a little bit underwhelming. So I will probably say that one, probably the final episode. Okay, I mean they didn't give it to Eamon Tully. I really love that actor, but like the fact that he even stood up to be like, "Hey, remember me?" Yeah, he's great in the crowd. Yeah, he's also in the crowd, uh, but Tobias Mendes. Uh, I'm just it's like, incredible. but just sit down in this meeting. He very much felt like the person who knows they're the least important person in the meeting and so therefore feels like they need to raise their hand a whole bunch of times, which I felt absolutely bad about him. I don't know, Mark, what about you? Um, six episode season, so there's not gonna be that many for us to go and break down, but what do you think was the best? What do you think it was the worst real quick? Well, I, I would have taken the long night if no one else did, just because it was just such an epic sprawling, cinematic treat for the eyes for the ears audio visual even stuff that you had to squint to see it, it felt like it was worth it and it was worthy of being the best episode but the way that this season kicked off was really cool because it definitely felt like we had a purpose and so as much as people might have felt like the end of it was a little short changed that we had to cut some corners to get characters to certain moments the first season winterfell I think it's the highest on the tomato meter for a reason, because it really starts us on a path, not necessarily with battle just yet, but with characters and alliances. And it's it's one of the critical points where I think it's Sam is the one that tells John who he actually is, that, that he is the true heir to the Iron Throne. And so then us knowing this, we're not sure how that's going to jive between John and Daenerys. And then we also have Jamie Lannister, finally arriving back at Winterfell, the site of the fateful tower push, and where, you know, I understand you don't want to get caught hooking up with your sister, but you don't push a kid out of a tower because of it. And then to see that meeting, to have the Stark family reunion, it was just so much. And it was like, oh, all of our characters are back and we're going to go on this last journey together. Plus, I watched it with uh, uh, our good friend, Ken Knapsack and Joseph Scrimshaw and Darina Ariano, a, a friend of the show here in Chicago, right after I taped my special. And um, it was the Sunday night and I was only allowed in their hotel room to watch it if I promised to not say a word the entire hour because they're super hardcore Game of Thrones fans. And so me, I, like I, if I was crunching too loud, 
on my salty snacks that I got from the hotel bar, I would have been chastised. So I really had to behave myself, but it was worth it because I really found it uh, compelling. Oh my I, gosh. I did a podcast with him right after that. Ah, uh, were they so, happy? Were they happy about that episode? I'm just curious since we've had at least half of that crew. Andres, on the I remember them. First yeah. of all, I remember them kicking me out so they could talk to you. And then I remember them being very stoked about what was to come. And, and I yeah. like shows like that where you see an episode and maybe it wasn't the best. Certainly there were better battle scenes later on in the, in the, the series, but it was just cool to have that promise of, ooh, there's so much excitement, Game of Thrones is back. It All really right. is, yeah. Uh, what was the worst then, Mark, um, besides so, <laughs> Iron the Throne? The worst for me, um, I am taking The Last of the Starks, which is the episode after The Long Night. And the reason I took that is because it's a tough act to follow this this huge battle and, and i do like a lot of what we saw in the first half of this episode because it's that weird celebration but not really a celebration because we have so many dead to bury and then we we're sort of by law required to have a feast that celebrates even though none of us are feel like celebrating we just want to be by ourselves and 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 cry and then we get to Daenerys and Daenerys that we get to the queen we get to Khaleesi we get to the, the the Amelia Clark's character and they're going to King's Landing but on the way we we sort of have to see um this incredible character just get beheaded in front of Amelia Clark's character and Grey Worm it's a uh, is it is it Missande? Missande. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just felt, uh, I don't know, I just felt bad. That, that one kind of left the, the sour taste in my mouth because of that. Yeah, I would say that The Last of the Starks, to your point, had no chance just in general because typically the penultimate episode is the big one that everybody's like raving about. And so then by the time we get to the last episode, we're just trying to like tie things up. The fact that this one was then a middle episode that then we had an entire half of the season left. It almost felt like they should have done it the way they did the last season of The Sopranos and the last season of Sex and the City where they like broke it up into two parts like that. Like it felt like this show would have been better if you would have had six seasons to start it, six seasons to end it. And of course we know the reasons why that was not necessarily gonna work for a whole host of different reasons. Most importantly, that the two creators were more interested in making a Star War um, and, a, and a problematic so, uh, slavery television show. But for whatever reason, they decided not to do that. And this is where yep. we ended up with, this is goes back to my previous point as far as best and worst episode they're all the best and they're all the worst and that's the real problem with it there's a considerable level of inconsistency with this even going back to each of the episodes that y'all said so winterfeld is amazing episode i will agree and it's the best of the season as far as i'm concerned because it also was one of the few ones that actually got to borrow a lot of source material because george r, r. martin has released these sort of um, mini episodic um i would say like novelettes um, about various uh, characters in the interim of him giving the book that we'll never get. Uh, so he hasn't finished the next book, but he's been sending out these little like vignettes of scenes. And one of them was with Yuri Greyjoy. And so his, his entire storyline for season eight is pretty much borrowed a lot from that. And especially him, you know, with the Yara situation and the Golden Company, that's all borrowed from that. Um, his sort of story that George R. R. Martin posted. That's amazing. But then you can't really tell me that there's an actual, I would say, reconciliation with the fact that 
Cersei is just sitting back with this whole White Walker instance, knowing exactly what's going to happen. The the way that they sort of segmentize even in within that episode and just Daenerys's posture in that first episode and then everything that happens. One of the things that happened that was major would have been great for one of those episodes or two and a bunch of character development, but they're doing so many. Like John riding uh, the dragon, Daenerys, and you know, touching um, her ancestral home, um, you know, Cersei sort of doing her plot and her scheming, you know, everything with Theon, that's all just jammed into this first episode. And although it's really great, it just never feels like any of it has its actual footing. Nothing really feels lived in. And the minute something happens with one character that you want to be like, oh, this happened, oh my God, I need to reckon with it. We're already on to something else. And it never gives anybody a chance, I think, to catch their breath. And you cannot say that it did not feel rushed because of that. Let's talk about scenes, because I think that'll be easier to sort of illustrate what you're saying about why it was really good. Because I know there were a ton of like, incredible scenes from season eight, even if maybe the whole season didn't gel. Do you have one that you wanted to break down? Ooh, uh, can I break down the one I was breaking down before? Yeah, uh, yeah, go ahead. The Long Night. Yeah. Uh, so the episode starts, it starts with a wonder on Sam. Uh, and obviously it's very, very darkly lit uh, for all those people who are very upset about that. Anyways, uh, Melisandre comes um, from out of nowhere uh, on a lone horse as the snow sl slowly starts to build in uh, and we see the armies all lining up, getting ready for battle. We see um, the Unsullied, the Dothraki, the Northern men. We see Jamie and Brienne in the front lines. Uh, Tormund Giant Spain is there. All these people we know and love from past seasons getting ready to go to war uh, for their lives, for the world, for the end of mankind, uh, all the highest stakes you can possibly imagine. Uh, and then as we uh, slowly come in, um, we see that Melisandre goes up to Jorah and basically tells him to raise her swords. She lights the swords of the Dothraki. Uh, all the swords go on fire. And obviously that's another point of emphasis when it comes to lighting that's very purposeful. I can go back and say that again, but I won't. Uh, and all the Dothraki now have flaming swords, which implies that they have an advantage towards the whites. Um, they then go charging towards the white army that is charging towards them that we can't even see. Uh, and in the matter of seconds, they are all wiped out, uh, much to the <laughs> surprise of everyone watching, considering uh, Danny and John are watching from a mountaintop above. And uh, so is the rest of the armies watching the strongest warriors on horseback get destroyed uh, in a matter of seconds really is, I think, one of the coolest ways to build up an unstoppable force. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best 
to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Yeah, that was pretty yeah. intense, and, and it reminded me of that scene when I was watching the NCAA tournament final uh, on the men's side when Gonzaga just ran into Baylor with everything they couldn't. Baylor's like, nope, not today. And they just demolished them. That was sort of like the battle, except obviously with much more lighting. Again, I approve <laughs> of the lighting choices. And it would be cool to see a basketball game with no lights on, just like how we used to play pickup. Um, I but So one of my favorite scenes is obviously from that episode because there's so many to pick from. But Jacqueline highlighted it where it's simply Arya Stark. And it's a surprise that it's her, the one that's doing it. But when she is the one that kills the Night King, because we all expected it was going to be John, she ends up stabbing him with that Valerian uh, little, uh, you know, sword she has. And it's so cool because, yes, she's still a teenager, but everyone who saw that instantly, at least in my line of thinking, was like, yes, she's perfect to do that. I don't give that sort of run to a lot of teenagers. I give it to her because she built up that credibility with the audience with not only Macy Williams' performance of the character the last few seasons, but everything that that character had endured, her uh, trials on the road with the Hound and all of the the backstabbing that had gone on in, in her entire life that she saw firsthand, hardening her into this sort of trained assassin. She lives up to the promise. And as soon as that happens, we're all like, yes, that is so cool. Didn't expect it, but that is cool. The biggest issue I have with season eight is characters as far as where they arc to and where they end up. And two characters particularly I've seen, I saw a long decline as far as how they were developed to the point where even though both of them end up, I think in a good place by the end of it, the path of how we got there was so nonsensical that it made me not understand if the people writing the, the characters really had read their own work previously. And that's the Stark sisters with both Arya and Sansa. They give them tons. They have tons to do. And both of them like end up developing. But it's in the last of the Starks, when we sort of see where Arya and Sansa are, that I personally am just like, this does not make any sense to me whatsoever. And one of the scenes that illustrates that is the scene with Sansa, where she is talking with Daenerys about what's going to happen afterwards because everybody except for Jon Snow recognizes that especially Arya and especially Sansa are a huge threat to Daenerys and what she is going to do because neither of them for one have any allegiance to her and more importantly she is their biggest villain because they know for a fact this is her murderous family like their your family started this we will finish it but your family started this and although you have you know hypnotized uh, John with your magical white-haired womanly ways, we are not about to play that game with you. And what's interesting about that is the two characters, as far as how they approach Daenerys is one thing, but when Sansa plays that game with her where she pretends like they're gonna be like in a sewing knitting circle, uh, that is the Sansa that got tricked by Cersei. By the end of the conversation, she goes back to the Sansa that's eventually gonna be the Iron Queen sort of woman of the North, but they play with that character in, an, in a naive and stupid way. And they did the same thing in season seven where it made it seem like Sansa was gonna think that her sister was betraying her over the really manipulative little finger. And they never seem to let either of these characters own who they are. The same thing with Arya. She's a woman who didn't seem to need to be seduced by 
the sort of, I would say, feminine, whatever aspects of it. And so this idea of her seducing Gandry, I guess in a certain way pays off certain things, but it also felt really strange. Like that's the way they would put that character right before she goes and murders the Night King. It's a cool moment. All of these are cool moments. They just don't make sense with the person once you turn the page. And both of those scenes, they're cool scenes when you pitch them in a writer's room and you say, well, we have this scene with Arya and Gondry, they're gonna get it on and she's totally gonna use him because she wants to feel a man's touch before going into this battle that they'll probably lose. But it doesn't make sense for her. It does not make any sense. And that's the problem with it. And even where both the girls end up with themselves and that path started in season seven with them questioning each other. And I just felt like, especially with the women of the show, they never really wrote them complex. If they ever tried to give them complexity, it ended up being confusion. I thought you and I were on the verge of agreement before about Sir Jamie. Brienne has been loyal to me, always. I trust her more than anyone. I wish I could have that kind of faith in my advisors. Tyrion is a good man. He was never anything but decent towards me. I didn't ask him to be my hand simply because he was good. I asked him to be my hand because he was good and intelligent and ruthless when he had to be. He never should have trusted Cersei. You never should have either. That's the reason why, and I don't like it. And that, we'll get into more of that when we start talking about Daenerys and when we start talking about Missandre, because I have a whole rant on that one in case you couldn't guess. But we have more scenes to discuss. Um, what about you, Andres? Do you have another scene that sort of, I guess, encapsulates the good, the bad, or the in-between? Yeah, there's definitely an episode that I feel like not enough people talk about. And I think a lot of, I think it's mainly because people were upset at what was going on. Um, but me being the weirdo that I am was like, look at what's happening on TV, this is incredible. Um, I was kind of blown away by the concept and by the delivery of episode five, which is the bells. And the scene specifically that I'm talking about is almost the final scene of the episode where we have that incredible wonder uh, with Arya, who's currently going through this basically like disaster movie inside a medieval period where dragons are flying over her and the camera pans up and you see a giant dragon. Uh, buildings are exploding like it's the end of the world and she is dodging people left and right and you see people come up to her, grab her, throw her to the ground. Uh, it's really one of the best wonders I've seen, period. Uh, and it shows you how much there is going on when it comes to the disaster that is happening in King's Landing. And I feel like the director really wanted to put you in the POV of what would it feel like to be in this medieval times and then have this basically weapon of mass destruction flying overhead and blowing up the city. And we get to see that in Arya's point of view. Uh, and then obviously the, ep the episode concludes with her and the horse. Um, slowly going up to the horse and covered in ash. But I feel like that entire wonder sequence is just so underrated. And I think a lot of people forgot about it because they were like, what is Danny doing? Instead of being like, yo, this is kind of incredible. At least what we're seeing on camera, uh, the choreography, the camera movements, the acting uh, was really spot on. And I really did feel like, oh my God, what would it feel like to see a dragon just exploding your city? I, I really did feel like that was phenomenal. Yeah, it the was horse, great. Yeah, the horse covered in ash is awesome. That's yeah. just yeah. such a cool look. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I would say, though, 
is this is the reason why I say season eight is a cutscene season because everything that's cool about it feels cool. It just doesn't necessarily gel because remember to get that level of carnage, Daenerys has to go on a murder spree, which they set the breadcrumbs to with Missandre dying, with her sort of just being pushed further and further by Cersei, but they just didn't let any of that marinate long enough for people to appreciate it. For a lot of people, Danny was still the lost girl who stared longingly at the dragon eggs in season one. And so to bring her to this murderous dark queen moment, which again, plenty of the fans of the book and of the show predicted would happen, you have to really show that decline. And the most she got was some darkened eyebrows and some messed up hair. That was the character development they gave to justify that murder. And so, yeah, it was cool, but they didn't earn it. They didn't earn that moment. They just wanted to do it cheaply. And I think that's the problem, but I don't know, Mark, what about you? Do you have a, a scene on yours? Uh, my moment was certainly earned. I'll tell you that much because <laughs> you can only be on the road with someone for so long. I don't care if you're a comedian, rock band, touring production, before you're just like, you know what? This is just too stupid to not do this. And yes, talking about Jamie Lannister and Brienne of Tarth, they got it on. You are an only child. I told you I was. You didn't. I did. I surmised. <laughs> Drink. Go again. Why does he get to go again? Because it's my game. You have danced with friendly Baratheon. Drink. Finally. And you may watch that and say, okay, this is cool, but I don't really buy that these two characters are going to have this sort of sexual attraction for each other. I did buy it in the moment, and I thought it was cool, and I was happy for Brienne, and I was like, Jamie, you better treat her with respect. And then what happens? They stick to their characters, and then the very next time we see them, Jamie is just back to being old two-faced, one-handed Jamie, and he's saying, hey, um, not only do I not love you, no one's ever going to love you. And he takes off, and he runs back, to go be with his sister. And it is just one of those heartbreaking moments that Game of Thrones, I think by this point too, and maybe this is one of the symptoms of having so much greatness in the first six seasons is that we are always, as Game of Thrones fans, we're watching this and we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. And that was not a, a surprise to see that Lannister is gonna Lannister because we've already been through so many shocks from the beheading in season one to the red wedding to all of the things that have taken place with some of our beloved characters. And then they're just done. So that that relationship was not going to bear a whole lot of fruit after that one night, but it was just cool for the moment. Just that, Hey, I'm glad everybody's getting their, uh, getting their last licks in, in this quite. The it was a virginity sense. smorgasbord. Let's be honest. There was a, there was a lot of, uh, of, uh, first times happening in that episode. Also, though with the Brienne and Jamie thing you're right that is an earned moment ever since they sat in that bath together where he told his tea about the mad king and you were like oh Jamie and he's always been a complicated character but I will I will offer you this if we got to sit with Jamie and Brienne in happiness for three episodes before he betrayed her it wouldn't have felt so herky-jerky which just goes back to my point of like Everything was there for this season. I'm not trying to say that the beats 
were inconceivable. But again, there was just not near enough detail and certainly not enough time for any of them to feel really like emotionally resonant. And the things that were emotionally resonant, a lot of times because they were so quick, they just felt manipulative, including the scene that I'm about to bring up, which is Masandre being beheaded, which I am not gonna lie to you. Um, black women of Twitter were already very much not happy with Benioff and Weiss after No Confederate. For folks that don't know what happened, at one point, Benioff and Weiss had pitched a show to HBO. There was a press release about it where it was a fantasy version of the United States where slavery was still legal in certain portions. And it was gonna be called No Confederate and it was gonna be written by two men who prior to this could not seem to find four black characters that they wanted to ever feature on a show. And now they were gonna write this like slavery fantasy narrative and people yeah. quite was, rightly basically like the south was gonna won the civil war and i'll just tell you uh as somebody who is from the south i fought in two civil war reenactments i'm undefeated i'm two and oh <laughs> and um we really didn't need to see what happens if the south wins the civil war oh there, my there, god there's stories yes oh my god we are going so, to Jacqueline, dig I'm gonna in listen, on that I'm going to listen to your scene. I want to keep the show going. I'm not pulling a Jamie Lannister. I'm not ditching anyone. I'm just going to go plug in my power source again. But I'm listening. I want to keep the show going. I will be back. And I will defend your honor once again. I appreciate um, while it. While he's gone, um, it, what, is it is it Melisandre? Or what, is, is, you're talking about... Missende. 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 Did I say Melisandre? Yeah. I'm sorry, Missende. Sorry, my bad. Yeah. Melisandre is the queen woman. Again, funny names. Missende. Why can't we just... The black girl with the nice hair. We're going to grow real with that one. Natalie Emanuel's character. How about that one? Anyway, her character got very like unceremoniously beheaded. And I just remember that episode being completely frustrated with how that ended. Because the previous season, we got beautiful, liberated slave people love between Grey Worm and her. And it was just like one of these amazing culminations of what you kind of saw from like, you know, their first like sort of spying each other's across the pool. Like you knew that there was this longing between them and this very sort of heartfelt love affair. And they killed her in such a public fashion just to, motiv to motivate Daenerys to go on a murder spree and to give justification for Grey Worm to also become a murderer. I understand the catalyst, I understand the point, but the character deserved so much better. It deserved more than to be fridged. And for people that don't know, that's the comic book trope where you murder a female character to motivate another character. In this case, even though it was a woman, it's the same trope, it's just as lazy. Um, and they could have honestly achieved it just by having her dragon die. They already had put that out there as a reason why Daenerys would go into this form of madness as a mother losing her children. But you just had to add the, um, the slave girl cherry on top, which again, it just did not feel appropriate for that character. Most people couldn't even hear what her last words were with the way that they shot it and sort of cut off what she was saying. You know, it just, it felt like such a betrayal. And it just felt like the people who were caretakers of this of these characters did not treat them with the same level of care that they did in previous seasons. They, well, uh yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was like, they gave them more and they were more careful with them prior to this. And just everything about this one just felt like, not that they didn't care about these people, but just that they would not give them the time to nurture these storylines. Yeah, I, I, was on a, I was on a podcast for Game of Thrones called Casterly Talk. Shout out to all the people who were on there too. But I, I've always mentioned that I've always had an issue with the way they've treated people of color in Game of Thrones in general. And this is me being the Game of Thrones guy who obsesses over Game of Thrones, but I always felt some type of way 
whether it was Oberyn Martell getting brutally murdered in the worst way possible. I took that personal. Uh, I, pu I pulled a Michael Jordan uh, <laughs> because I really did feel like this is literally the only person of color we know who has more than five speaking lines and who's considered to be um, someone of royalty. Yeah. Uh, which and is not beholden to any other white lead character he really Correct. was his own man which is why which is why he's still in my opinion one of the best characters ever in the show even though he was only there for eight episodes and he still had that crazy end uh which a lot of people i don't know i think a lot of people this is me going back to season four i shouldn't be doing this but i, I feel like a lot of people might have taken that death a little too like like yeah that was crazy uh look at the way his brain exploded and i was like oh this is the only guy who has a mustache and an accent and we're going to blow his head. Like, is that really how we want to do it? So I, I think my issue was always every season, how they kind of tossed aside the people of color, which to me brings me to Grey Worm. I had a whole rant on Grey Worm on Casterly Talk, my, my old podcast, because I felt like the way they did Grey Worm was almost even worse because I feel like it's like one of those things where at the end of the episode, we have Tyrion, and obviously you can justify everything Grey Worm did. I, I probably would have been killing everyone in the city too if I lost Missendei. Uh, I mean, my God, that was that's awful, right? So I, I feel like the way they treated him by the end of, as far as Tyrion being like, it's not your decision. You know, we got rid of your queen. And I'm like, bro, he literally took the city by himself. Like Grey Worm killed like 400 people. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he's the king now. Yeah. <laughs> but they kind of put him to the side and they were like, he was like, oh, you can pick All your king. In I'm reality, out. Grey Worm's the king in he like is. a real thing. Until somebody I'm, else rises yeah. up to take him down. That is exactly what happened. He conquered the city. Yeah. Danny conquered. I was like, low key. I mean, technically he's a conqueror. And you're right. He's not from there. Like Tyrion said, you're not from here. But I was like. But he still conquered the city. He's still King Grey Worm. Yeah. Uh, but they were like, all right, I'm going to sail away at my island. But I feel like- if that was the logic, everyone in Daenerys' family line was once- Exactly. Like, this is the idea of like, immigrants can't come here and make a life. Anyway, it's yeah. trash. Yeah. I, I just feel like <laughs> it wasn't surprising to me, I yeah. guess is what I'm trying to say, that by season eight, they chose to do that because they've been doing it for eight seasons. I guess that's my justification <laughs> uh, for them being like- you know, in season eight, they kind of did people of color wrong. And I was like, ah, they've been doing that for eight seasons, though. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like they've been doing people of color wrong for eight seasons. So I I, I felt like that was in line with the way they were kind of going. Yeah. And the one thing I will say is we're going to get to this as we sort of turn the page and sort of break down the behind the scenes thing for it. But I will, before we, we go into that, I will just go ahead and say every major pain point like throbbing bruise of awfulness that happened in season eight there were little glimmers of this in earlier seasons everything by season eight that a lot of people could not stomach they had done literally from episode one they had just been done more artfully to where people could forgive it including jamming them too much in a story including the way they treated poc characters including you know rushing character development and slowing it down for others all of the things that people had huge issues with and lighting battle of the bastards um all of these things <laughs> just got um magnified and sort of amplified in season eight so with that let's go ahead and take a moment right here and break down our industry talk of stuff behind the scenes of game of thrones christian cue us up okay 
So just to sort of level set the table, we will go ahead and admit, you know, Game of Thrones is over, but Game of Thrones universe or the thrones averse is not. George R. R. Martin just signed a big old deal for more stuff with HBO. We have spinoff shows coming. That's the reason why HBO is getting some great corporate synergy with this month-long April celebration of 10 years. Um, and there's been a lot of talk since then, both by people involved in the show as well as fans of the show about what went wrong. There's like hundreds of YouTube videos and even some of the stars have come out and said, you know, how they they felt about season six. And the best part is they commissioned a documentary <laughs> on the last episode that was supposed to be a celebration of the show. And they were actually gonna go on tour to sort of promote it, um, the last watch. And people were so mad at the creators by the time that it came out that they just canceled the press tour. Like that's, <laughs> they were like, F this, we ain't going out. These people are legitimately mad and we're not gonna face them because that's what you do. It was like, it's like politicians canceling town halls. But hey, it's smart. That's a smart thing to do. Okay. <laughs> I got a buddy who was opening for Charlie Sheen when he did that ill-fated tour. And he's like, yeah, we probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> oh, God, really? Yeah. You have a buddy that did that? Oh, man, that's a documentary. Mm -hmm. There's an oral history that I would love to hear. Yep. So knowing that there's so much behind the scenes, um, like I think for me, and I'll get to it later, <laughs> Benny Off and Wise are the epitome of failing up in the history of Hollywood. I'm sorry. Like they're talented people, probably. I cannot say that they're not because the show was was good, but there was nothing in either of their resume that made should have made folks think that they were capable of adapting this to the point where, if folks don't know it, they messed up the first pilot and nearly lost their jobs, but HBO gave them a second shot at it. So from the beginning, these guys literally had to start with a do-over. They messed up the first pilot. Yeah. And I will get into that in a minute when we go there. What did they do? Did they lose the cards? Like well, it was cast totally different. First of all, Daenerys wasn't in there. A lot of other folks weren't in there. Apparently, it was so flat that HBO was furious. But they did not fire them because George had vouched for them. And he was the only, they were the only pair that he would let adapt it. Basically, they went to him as just incredible fanboys and kissed his ring. And so he was like, okay, if you get HBO, let's do this. But that is literally the only thing that happened that made them the caretakers of this. And I think we've now seen that maybe they weren't always the best, but I don't know, Andres, knowing all the behind the scenes stuff with Game of Thrones, is there anything you want to sort of maybe folks remind to on maybe the good or maybe the things that, hey, we may have forgotten how bad this is. I'm so interested in how the, the characters reacted. Well, I, I'm not necessarily saying that maybe the conclusion was the best because there's always ways to improve it. Obviously, I did feel the rushed uh, aspect of the show, of season eight. I, I just feel like it's so different considering an entire season of a show, right? Where versus a film, when we're criticizing a film, I feel like the way we criticize a film is a film as a whole. It could be two and a half hours, two hours, but we know first act, second act, third act versus a season. I feel like a season has so much more there to offer us, whether it be uh, in performances or in quality or in other aspects of the season. I feel like there was still a lot there. Uh, as far as D&D &D goes, uh, I call them D&D, &D, uh, Dan and Dave, uh, I, think, I think adaptations are surprisingly extremely difficult to do, uh, especially adaptations for massive, massive novels like 
this Game of Thrones novel. So if anyone has ever read the books, you know that there's a lot, a lot there. It's a, it's very difficult to cut it down. Uh, as someone who dabbles in my own adaptations uh, in my own free time, and I try to adapt certain works, uh, it is hard. It is very hard, guys, uh, to do this stuff and to bring it down. So I definitely want to commend them for giving us some of the best TV we've ever seen. Uh, considering they were adapting it from the books beforehand, whether it be season three, season two, uh, season four. There's a lot that I think people can't deny is some of the best TV they've ever seen on television. Uh, so I feel like I feel like there's a lot there, Dan and Dave. I definitely agree that they might have mistook their power a little bit too much, especially when they were going off George George's notes instead of his actual books. Uh, because I do also want to, reiterate the fact that I feel like most of what happened in season eight actually is gonna happen in the books. Or it was prior to this reaction, because that's the other T now. People think that George is the reason why it's taking him so long to finish is he might change it because of how it. the reaction was. I found that very interesting because Mark Hoffmeyer, our expert researcher, he gives us a George R. R. Martin sized tome of notes leading up to each one of these episodes and he's great at it but i found it so fascinating that the the dan and dave got brand becoming the king from george's notes and yeah. so fans because there seemed to be this narrative that now that they're going off on their own path that they're alienating george and that it's not and again it's another franchise where people feel like a george is being alienated and it's like well no th th george said brand was the king i'm sure they took a lot of other liberties that george may not have been thrilled about i don't know but just knowing that something that crucial was actually part of the plan for george makes me almost think well okay wait, let me rethink this whole brand being king thing well I think that's my point too, is like, I heard a lot of people after season eight be like, I can't wait when the books come out and, and he redoes this whole thing. And I'm like, oh, this all comes from him, guys. Sorry to tell you that Danny is gonna break bad in the books. That is coming from George. Bran is gonna be king in the books. That is coming from George. Like this is all straight from George R. R. Martin. This isn't Dan and Dave doing their own thing and yeah, but being again, how do you rebellious get there? creators. It's how do you it's, get there? Is it, is it that, is that yeah. John was crowned first and walks away? Is it like, there's so many different turns that you can get to to get the chairs in the final position and the journey is where they messed it up, I think. Sure, but I, I still feel like a lot of people were mad about the Danny being evil thing uh, where I, I really do feel like that is definitely straight from George. I think they were uh, mad about it because they didn't give it enough time. You needed the, t sure. like the audience, um, it's actually funny, a completely different show, but um, Insecure season four had this huge fight between Molly and Issa in the last season. I know we're taking a turn, but it's an HBO show, bear with me. It's a great show. It is a great show. Yes. And so many people were mad at Molly, one character, and not mad at Issa, even though the writers had written it to where this was supposed to be an argument between friends where you could have gone on either side. And that's usually the way arguments with really close friends end up. But because the audience is so in love with Issa, because she's the avatar for so many folks when they come into the story and they see themselves as her, they were never gonna betray her. And Molly, for as much as she's a part of the show, was never the number one. And so in any argument, when you're pitting those two together, they're gonna go with the one they identify with the most. Danny is the one they identify with the most. Everybody loves Danny or loves to hate her or whatever. She is just such a huge focal point of the story. For you to make her be the evil dark queen, you've got to earn it because they still see her as that girl 
who fell in love with Carl Drogo, my, my, my moon and stars and all of that. And, you know, they still see her as the mother of dragons. You had to show her to be what she was and they tried to, they just didn't give it enough time. No, I definitely agree with that. I definitely feel like there's a lot there that should have been built up a little bit more. Um, I, I can only speak for myself when I say that I was kind of off the Danny train a little bit earlier in the seasons because I did notice a little a little fascist, a little fascist in there. Uh, and Killing I was like, the rich oh. people. I'm like, we all like eat the rich is a thing, but like, sis, <laughs> there, there, there was some things in there that I've always felt like there was a little bit off about Danny. And I, I felt like they were probably leading to this moment, considering we saw in season two, the vision uh, of the keep in the way she walked in, a lot of people saying it was snow from the White Walker, and then a lot of people realizing, oh no, it's ash from the way she burns down the city. I, I think the way that D and D wanted to set up Danny's story was like the whole like one bad day comic book story arc, which is the Killing Joke mm -hmm. aspect of it. If anyone knows, yeah, um, which is essentially like a set of events, a sequence of events that is just really horrific for Danny, just kind of set her off and pushes her off the edge uh it's the same setup as the dark knight for anyone who doesn't know like all it takes is gravity uh the line from the joker where it's like this concept of like if danny loses her dragon in the same day that she loses Masende, in the same day that she is betrayed by Varys, in the same day that she feels uh shafted by Jon snow she's gonna turn evil like it's like a setup of I, I know what they were going for is, is what i'm trying to say funny that you mentioned the killing joke another thing where i think that that plot device works better in the written form or even in the graphic novel form yeah. than it does in the visual form it's because also with the to bring up. well the, the killing joke that's the reason why that comic book adaptation um in addition to a whole bunch of other things doesn't necessarily work as well as it used to like if you've seen the animated killing joke you will see what it means it's the same way it, it, just with comedy in in terms of what you can get away with with animation and comedy versus what works with live action it's like two completely different things and so when you're talking about these characters, and I, I think I'm in between y'all as far as how I feel about the adaptation from the source material, because again, as somebody who admittedly did not experience the source material, I love this quote that Hoffmeyer put in the research for us about that Steve Martin, who's adapted a lot of stuff. Steve Martin, the great comedian and banjo player, said that every adaptation is like a marriage that's going to end in divorce. You're eventually going to get divorced. It's just a matter of if it's amicable or if it's contentious because you're going to stray. You're going to start and say, I'm going to be faithful to this source material, but then you start to get your own ideas. And as the further you adapt, Andres, you probably know this from firsthand experience, the further you get down that path, the further you start taking a little bit of ownership of as far as what these characters are doing. And so you start taking some more liberties and then you eventually end up divorcing it. And I think just as far as the fan reaction goes, this did not seem to be the most amicable divorce, even though we really don't know who said what behind closed doors. And it's going to remain one of those those great mysteries until the oh, end of time, the, or at least until, until the oral history. New I, they're, shows they're, come out. They're going to do some like, because they just did one on Mad Max Fury Road. I am so, so ready for the Benioff and Wise oral <laughs> uh, history. I will also say like those two, I'm not trying to say that they are untalented folks, but I will say that when you hear the story of how they got the show 
And when you hear like how much money and resources they threw, they threw every Sopranos director. They threw half of that writer's room of every great hit show they had. These guys were literally set up to be nothing but successful and they still had to shoot the pilot twice. And that just to me makes me seem like I think they got in a groove and they learned how to be caretakers of this material when they were sitting on oceans of places to go. But towards the end, it, it downhill. And it's not lost on me that the best episodes from this season were not written by them. The best episodes for the show were also not written by them or directed by them. And the reason why the last episode is probably the trifecta of everything going wrong is because it was both written and directed by both of them. Sorry, I, I think you guys are probably great but I need to see more evidence that these two are the mad scientist genius of fantasy adaptation that they had been proclaimed to be for the seasons that they did it. Because for folks that don't know also how the way shows work, writer's rooms make shows. Creators guide it, writer's rooms make it. And when you have the guiding principle of such rich source material, if you've got a writer's room that you're trying to say, we need to deviate from this, and you've got, you're sitting on that ocean of source material, I think it's a harder sell than if you are literally kind of inventing it on your own. I, I really do feel like that's a great point, but I also I also still want to point out the uh, certain concepts and ideas that may have been considered problematic. Part of that was definitely Dan and Dave, but I still feel like a lot of that was George. Uh, for anyone who reads the novels and, and knows that you can say, oh, D&D messed this up, but then it's like, ah, George doesn't really care about these characters either. The characters that, you know, like Ray Worm on the Sunday or some other characters like that, that we, we might've liked as an audience because they were different from everyone else, uh, which is why I, I kind of want to, you know, reiterate the point that all the spinoffs that have been announced, I am excited for because I really do feel like this is an opportunity to kind of course correct uh, and really say, hey, let's cast a more diverse cast Let's put different people are. in charge. And they are, yeah. I, I noticed it when they announced the last cast. Well, since you know um, about it, give us a quick breakdown on the first one that they're talking about, which is the House of Dragons. So that way we can maybe sort of end with, hey, this may have left a bad taste in our mouth, but we've got an after mint coming, after dinner mint coming. Yeah, so uh, it's obviously, I feel like it's definitely a mixed conversation because I feel like when it comes to uh, the Targaryens and how they came up to be to where they are. I feel like a lot of the show pitching was how do we bring dragons back? <laughs> mm -hmm. Hey, uh, the dragons to be... kept looking better and better as the yeah. seasons and the budgets went on. The dra I'll say this about season eight, the dragons. Dragons were dope. Great. Dragons were dope. Dead dragon, even doper. Oh, uh, I, I, I don't like looking at that. It oh my God, the sad. dead dragon. I was like, kill him. Sorry. It made me feel sad. <laughs> Uh, I, I guess my point is the fact that I feel like they want to be able to do the cinematic aspects of the show while still delivering uh, some of the other qualities that we really did enjoy from the show. I, I also want to feel like, I feel like a, a lot of this comes to the idea of what is a female dragon rider. Uh, and obviously the one we know is Danny, uh, but obviously the one that uh, Arya knows and the one that everyone else knows is Nymeria. Uh, but the concept of bringing in a female dragon rider and what the implications of that are, I think is extremely fascinating. But also, I, I'm, I'm curious how they're going to present the Targaryens in this show, because I, I'm, I think we all know now, watching all eight 
seasons of Game of Thrones that maybe having a weapon of mass destruction during medieval times isn't necessarily the best idea or doesn't make you the best of people. Uh, it's the concept of power corrupts um, where if I have a giant nuclear bomb during a time where wagons are really cool, uh, it's probably not a good idea to use that thing. And that's what the Targaryens do. Uh, and they do it very well, which is why I always catered towards the Martells. <laughs> Shout out to my Instagram name, Prince Adorum, uh, because I really did feel like the Martells were the ones who resisted the dragons and almost low-key defeated the dragons, not necessarily by... Uh, confronting them or using a scorpion like they did in season six or seven, um, but by using different tactics and guerrilla tactics and uh, the way that the Martells uh, was run by this old lady, like an ancient lady, uh, and who she went face to face with the younger, more powerful Targaryen dragon rider uh, and confronted her. And it's really this cool moment where it's this two powerful women facing each other. One of them is like a hundred years old. The other one's like this up and coming, powerful, uh, power hungry dragon rider. Uh, those are the kind of moments I would love to see in the show because I feel like maybe we should start to get off the Targaryen train. And if audiences are trained now to do that, it's gonna be a lot easier. Kind of like rewatching Breaking Bad, knowing where Heisenberg is going. We watch it now knowing exactly where he's going to end up. So maybe we're a little bit more likely to be like, all right, maybe he ain't that great. And maybe he is kind of the bad guy. I mean, so I hope that's what they do in the show. Yeah. Also with the house of the dragon, obviously this is going to explore um, Daenerys's bloodline and the, the tons of wars that sort of happen with it. For folks that don't know, Game of Thrones is based on the War of the Roses um, loosely. This idea of power being sort of fought between very powerful houses. And so kind of seeing like this from like a very origin origin story is interesting. Also seeing the sites of King's Landing that are not necessarily front and foremost, like the Onion Knights Flea Bottom, which is just like the pit of despair. You know, I would like to see a Flea Bottom Mandalorian type skull, uh, scum and villainy sort of look at what the crime ridden side of Flea Bottom is, you know, where smugglers and such uh, reign free. It's gonna be interesting. I, look, I just want the man to finish the books. Let's be honest. Let, just finish the books because there will be another, there will be another Game of Thrones adaptation once they finish the books. Let's keep it real. They've already gotten another Lord of the Rings. And I said to myself when that, sh when that thing came out, I was like, there's no way they're gonna do this again. Oh yes, they absolutely are gonna do this again. <laughs> let's just not beat up George too much if he had a whole pandemic to finish some books and didn't get it done because other than learning how to bake bread, what did we all really do during this last year? Huh? I learned I, mean, I learned how to play the piano better so he could learn how to finish a book. Well I, I feel didn't he like green light like a musical? Yeah, or was he's, it a he's working on musical and Bob Fosse <laughs> and won't finish dragons. You know what? We're gonna leave it pretty much there. Uh, really quickly, I'm gonna just go around because Georgia was so nice to send us this question and I wanna make sure that we at least try to answer it. To Georgia Hudson, did season, season eight give the satisfying ending we deserved? Who should have gotten the throne? Uh, I think Arya should have gotten the throne and I think it gave us the ending we deserved, not the ending that we wanted. I would have co-signed Arya getting the throne I would have co-signed Grey Worm, um, but I feel like Bran is is a fair candidate simply because he's one of the characters, 
that is unable to reproduce as far if I'm remembering correctly. So kids on this show, kids in general are, are, are pretty awful, and, except for the ones listening to this show. And kids on Game of Thrones are just going to grow up and and have some sort of warped heads. So the fact that he's the last of his line makes me feel like we can start to inch towards democracy in King's Landing. And, and we'll just call it the People's Landing. Fabulous. What about you, Andreas? What do you what do you got? The satisfying end, I'm guessing. And also you're cool with Bran. Uh, OK, the Bran part. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was definitely a little bit hard to swallow for me. I can't lie because I did feel like it was a little sus that he was like, I can't be king of the North. That's ridiculous. Uh, and then he's like, what king of the world? What was that? Sure. Uh, give me that crown. Yeah. Give me that crown, bro. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a little bit like, all right, man, come on now. Uh, and so, who wants to uh, do a court with that king? He's staring off into space telling you about your ancestor's death. Like, I'm sorry. Nobody wants to talk to Bran. Tyrion's running the kingdom. I really did feel like that was definitely another aspect where they probably could have kept him having a personality instead of necessarily being like this all-knowing being who only speaks super deadpan. Uh, and that was very purposeful, but I did feel like maybe if they were going to have him be king, maybe have him be Bran and not just like everyone and everything all at once. Um, Give a new three-eyed raven or something. Yeah, but I also feel like maybe there should it be anyone on the throne. And maybe that's kind of the conclusion of the show is that we shouldn't have uh, an Iron Throne anymore. I mean, they suggested that in the last episode yep. about a democracy and they all laughed. These people are not gonna <laughs> be able to put the toothpaste back What's in the What's the dog's tube. name? What's the- Ghost? What? Yo, yeah, put Ghost on the throne. Let the dog start yeah. making some decisions. I'm so, that's another thing too. I was mad when they put Ghost in the front lines against the army of the that dead. I was like, really? He made it. He made it through. So <laughs> did Tormund. I still think that we need the Torment Brienne love story that can still happen. Yeah. They're both yeah, still alive I, at the yeah. end of this. I also feel like before the, the show started, which was 300 years ago, there the each, each division kind of ran their own land. And that's kind of how the Targaryens became the Targaryens because they conquered all seven kingdoms. Mm-hmm. And they brought it all together in King's Landing. So it is possible to be like, you guys got your own home. Yeah. Deuces. Have yeah. a good night. States. Kind of thing. Let's so. do like states here. Actually, no, let's not do that. Let's actually move on to the mailbag before I make any horrible uh, suggestions for government. Uh, Christian. <laughs> the only thing the mailbag needs is more cowbell. All right. This is from, I'm going to say this. And Scarface fans, I'm just gonna say that this is the way it looks like it's spelled. Yayo, Y-E-Y-O. Hey, Yayo, I hope I'm saying that correctly. Um, they say- I have tough names today. Yeah, they show. say, I have two suggestions for Archie is Wrong podcast that I would love to listen in the next few weeks. My first suggestion is Forrest Gump. This movie won Best Picture, and for me, the audience, uh, the audience, it, is well reserved but the movie on rotten tomatoes is not even fresh i would love to see a podcast episode for this movie is forrest gump rotten now it's not super fresh um, okay i know that fresh. the people have soured maybe the audience score is not fresh we'll see yeah yo i'm i'm with you on forrest gump i i still have love for that movie sorry i know i'm like in the in the minority on that forrest and gump 
is 71% on the tomato meter. So not as fresh, but the audience loved it. Audience is 95%. Okay. So. so it's still doing okay. It's not as fresh as it used to be. His second or their second suggestion is Zack Snyder's Justice League. I know it's too soon, but many critics just found it as bad as the 2017 Justice League. The audience likes it a lot. And I've heard that this is one of the best superhero movies. Please, I really want to listen to this podcast. It would be awesome to hear Jacqueline Coley's opinion on this one. And I know my friend Mark Ellis loved it. Thanks for reading. Yeah, yo, I appreciate you as a person, but I don't think I've made this abundantly clear. Justice League is my Vietnam. Yo, my dear friend, I have looked at Jacqueline's calendar and there are so many dentist appointments and doctor's visits that are lined up specifically for the day that we tape our Justice League podcast so that she does not have to talk about it, which, hey, fine with me, you and me, We'll just we'll we'll spit game about Justice League and how cool it was in 2017 and how awesome it was to have a four hour cut that I watched over the span of a week and a half. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Do I understand the epilogue? Not one frame of it, but it was fun. And I like seeing more Batman and Wonder Woman on screen and justice for Cyborg. Finally, Andreas, sir. Um I just want to thank you so much for joining us today and giving your lovely game of Thrones insight. You've softened my opinion of season eight slightly. Oh, good. I still think it's trash, but it's not a dumpster fire of trash, <laughs> which That's is saying cool. a lot. You did yeoman's work today. Ace. You really did. Tell <laughs> folks where they can find you and what you're working on. Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Squad Leader Race, and obviously on my YouTube channel where I talk about other TV shows, movies, and anime and other stuff on First Cut, which is my YouTube channel. So if you search up First Cut on YouTube, it should pop up. Awesome. And since you are a TV and movie expert, you want to give us a recommendation of something that you're watching or something the folks should be watching? Ooh. Um, Justice League, the Snyder Cut. I was going to say, <laughs> how outside the box can I go? Oh, uh, wherever go. you want, sir. Yeah. There's no can rules. I, can I be the guy who recommends anime? Uh, I really do feel like a lot of people are watching um, Amazon's Invincible. Uh, which I'm currently watching as well, which is a lot of fun. But if you want to watch incredible, incredible uh, setup, animation, storytelling in general, uh, I recommend Jujutsu Kaisen. It's an anime that recently came out by the same studio who's currently working on another anime that is being developed by Netflix called Yasuke. I've seen um, that. There you go. It's the same animation studio called MAPPA. Um, who are incredible at doing what they're doing. Uh, so I recommend Jujutsu Kaisen because it's one season. So uh, go check that out. It's on Crunchyroll. It's on HBO Max. Actually, it's on HBO. There you go. There you go. As far as us here on the show goes, we have a lot of exciting guests and a lot of cool episodes to talk about coming up soon. You can email us anytime. RT is wrong at RottenTomatoes.com. That's RT is wrong at RottenTomatoes.com. Come and do all that rate review, the the likes, or the tell your grandparents about it. Every anything you can do to help the podcast because we love servicing you each and every week. You can do us a couple quick favors. We love. Yeah, and again, it looks like Ketchup Crew and Certified Guests are the number one running away with it ideas for what we call our folks that come on the podcast and the folks that listen. But I still want to hear more suggestions. I like a plethora. But I also appreciate that certified guest is pretty dope. Like, let's be honest. One of my favorite words is plethora. And now Andres is like his first gut teammate, Robert Butler III, is a certified guest. He is a certified guest. And yeah. we have another great one, I think, in store for us next week. But we're going to wait to tease that when we get there. But next week, we are playing in my house. Right, Mark? 
Yes, it is Oscar season. And Jacqueline, when she is not feverishly typing away at her computer, working on all those writing deadlines she has or doing any on-camera interviews or gracing us with her presence here each and every week, she's all about awards season, particularly the Oscars. We're going to be debating some of the best picture winners in history, according to the tomato meter. Should be a fun one. Should be a passionate one. I'm really excited about it. Again, this is literally my Super Bowl leading up to Oscars. And I might be breaking some news about some fun places that you guys can watch me over Oscars weekend because the folks here at Rotten Tomatoes are keeping your girl busy. So tune in for that one. Very excited. Uh, on behalf of Producey Lucy, Christian Rubicawa. Um, Christian, I said your name wrong. I'm sorry. Rubicawa. You got to hit the B where you hit the W. Yeah. Give it to me, Mark. What was uh, it? Ruval Kaba. Ruval Kaba. Yeah, or, I don't want to. I don't want to say his name wrong. Yeah. <laughs> also, Ruval Andreas. Yeah, and <laughs> Thanks to Daenerys Targaryen. <laughs> I know this is a bad name episode. Don't don't email <laughs> us about what we mispronounced today. We tried, guys. Missendrandra. Miss listen, <laughs> listen. We're just gonna go with it. But I will say thank you all. Also, Tim Ryan, my platonic life partner, Mr. Mark Ellis, Jacqueline here. Thank you guys again, and we will check y'all next time. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.